I want to be doing something that has redeeming value in the world. I don't want to just be going to a job. I want to be doing something where I feel like I'm making a difference to people and the world in some way. That's what I want to do. Okay, we're here with uh, Jason Barger today on the Gravity Podcast. Jason Barger is committed to engaging the minds and hearts of people in order to strengthen leadership, culture, and clarity of mission, visions, and values. He is a globally celebrated author, speaker, consultant, and creator of the Step Back from the Baggage Claim movement. Featured in the New York Times, National Geographic Traveler, Kiplinger, Book TV, and many other spots worldwide. His most recent books, Remember and Thermostat Culture, have been widely celebrated around the globe, and he's the host of the Thermostat podcast. Prior to sleeping in airports and observing human behavior, Barger led over 1,700 people to construct 125 houses internationally for families living in poverty, as well as implemented the Streets Mission Project to serve the homeless of the streets of Columbus, Ohio. As the former director of First Community Church's Camp Akita, he designed programming focused on living with joy, love, compassion, faith, and service for over 1,900 campers a summer. Jason is a graduate of Denison University, where he served as captain of the men's basketball team and also received certification from Georgetown University in nonprofit executive management. In 2004, he was one of five people in Columbus, Ohio, to receive a Jefferson Award, a national award given to ordinary people doing extraordinary things. In 2014, he was selected as 40 Under 40 Award winner by Business First. Jason is a sought-after keynote speaker, visionary, and consultant. As founder of Step Back Leadership Consulting, LLC, he works with organizations that are passionate about culture, change, leadership, development, innovation, service, and bringing their mission to life every day. Follow him on social media at Jason V. Barger and dive into the podcast, The Thermostat, where podcasts are found. Jason, thanks for joining us. Brett, great to be with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm uh, excited to get into your journey. And uh, as we've talked about, we'll start at the very beginning. So maybe you can just uh, give me a little a little description of kind of what was the early life, what the what was the early years, your where you're from, your family dynamics, kind of tell me about those very early years of your life. Yeah, you want to you want to get into the real stuff. I mean, you want to get into the the depths of this. I love it. Um, we do. We want to hear all of it. It's where, <laughs> it's where all the good stuff is. <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, man. Well, I, yeah. I hope this is interesting enough for people. I, you know, I I guess I would start out early years. Uh, I'll just start out by saying I I've been totally blessed and lucky, grateful to be born into uh, an amazingly loving and and extended family that has been supportive and caring and. Uh, taught me at a really early age uh, to see the world from a positive, you know, grateful point of view, and also challenged, I, I think, me to to see things uh, differently. So, extended family, like not just my parents were amazing humans. <laughs> my sister, I'm, I'm a middle child, so my uh, uh, older sister and a younger brother. My sister and my brother have been tremendous influences in my life uh, as well. But then aunts, uncles, cousins, like really been blessed by by such a great family. One, I guess 
where my mind goes when I think early years, though, in my life and the way that my parents and family began to shape the way at least I think and see the world is they also had the foresight. My parents had the foresight to uh, give us experiences early in life to see the world, uh, not just from Columbus, Ohio. I'm, I'm born and raised in Columbus, uh, but also my eighth grade uh, or my sorry, eight year old year, my second grade year, uh, we lived in Egypt. So my, my dad was a part, uh, was in international business and was doing all kinds of different projects. And at the time was involved in, in some development projects in the Middle East that over many years, I mean, there's lots to that story of varying degrees of success and failure in the midst of, of the Middle East and everything happening in that part of the world. But as a you know, second grader, I lived in Egypt, um, which nobody looks like you. Uh, you are watching people on the streets in Egypt and uh, seeing that the whole world does not live as you thought they did in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, we lived in Portugal uh, for part of a year uh, when I was in fifth grade uh, in a small village in Portugal. And again, totally different, but seeing the world from a different point of view. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, uh, my parents, uh, with business was not going well. They didn't have a whole lot of resources at the time around Christmas. And yet what they did have was airline miles. And so because my dad had been traveling so much for business that they had the foresight to wake up Christmas morning. We came down, there were no presents or very few presents under the tree. And we were like, wait, what's going on with this? This seems like a scam. What's happening here? And uh, next thing you knew, they were taking us to Germany. And there we were to, uh, standing at the Berlin Wall and helping mm. to to knock the Berlin Wall down. So, Jeez, wow. All right, I got to jump in there because that's yeah. um, a lot to, uh, you know, expand upon. And I'm just kind of looking at your background. You know, you've got the world map and the all you need is love. I mean, it, it's <laughs> clear, you know, that, that you know, this, this kind of early years really does make a impact and and how you're living today. And we'll get to that. But, um, you know, I also like to highlight, and we're on a bit of a streak now, I think, where we've had this kind of first part of the journey really be an unconditionally loving, joyful family experience. Um, you know, it's it's not always that way. And I like to just kind of highlight it. You know, I mean, how amazing is that, that, that there's a a generation before you that was really kind of honoring a healthy, happy, loving household. And it's it's not something to be taken lightly or for granted, as I think, you know, a lot of us are striving to do the same thing for our kids and our families that, you know, you had some really great role modeling that uh, and an experience that you got to embody that is is not something to take lightly. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I think when you grow up, you, you only know what you know, right? You only know what's around you. And, and I, I, again, I will admittedly say that, that I, I've, I've been blessed and grateful to be grow up in an environment like that where the people around me were supportive and caring and think. And, and, and so, you know, you think that's the way that everybody sees it. And certainly as my life evolved and, and then some of those early experiences where then you see the whole world doesn't live like you and, and isn't lucky to be born into a family like that and have the support and the resources uh, and the opportunities. Like, uh, absolutely. You feel grateful. Yeah. And, and it's an interesting thing. I'd like to hear a little bit more about kind of what it was like for you at eight, you know, eight's pretty young still. 
Um, but to be in a place like Egypt, it's 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 uh, impactful enough to really have a, a a memory and an impact. And then you know, as you start to move around the world um, for brief stints in Portugal and fifth grade, by that point, you know, you're starting to really you know understand and have some context. And to be in a small vi- village, that's got to be a hell of an experience. And we'll get to the story about Berlin. I want to talk about that too. But tell me, you know, these experiences of living. And and such unique environments that are so very different than this, you know, kind of midwestern suburban Columbus experience that we have here. What was that like for you at that age? It was amazing, uh, and, and I, that doesn't mean that it was easy. And because you you missed leaving your friends, that why we're going to Egypt, you know, you don't understand it when you're you know eight years old. But yet, how? Im- impactful it was for me to have to be in an environment where you have to make new friends. You have to, nobody, you know, very few people look like you. We'd walk around the streets in Cairo and, you know, my sister who had this bright blonde, you know, hair and blue eyes, uh, people would follow her around like she was C-3PO. I mean, it was amazing. Like people would, (laughs) because they'd never seen it before. Right. And so, you know, I went to a school where it was all English speaking. It was mostly people from around the world that were English speaking. Uh, and we still, we learned Arabic and things like that, but, but still it was for people from all around the world. And so, uh, you know, whenever we were playing outside of our apartment, uh, we were playing in the streets with kids where, you know, where the game is a soccer ball or something in the dirt playing in a junkyard, you know? And so you just were, um, you didn't, I didn't fully realize it, of course, at the time, but you're seeing this. I mean, I still remember one of our apartments that we lived in uh, one day looking out. So it was one of those uh, built, you you know, buildings very well, a building that was a big air shaft in the middle, coming up the middle of this uh, apartment complex that was kind of built in oval shape. And I remember one time uh, coming to the window, looking down the middle, like we're up high in the in the building, looking all the way down to the bottom of the the air shaft. And at the very bottom was this family that was living in the dirt with tarps over there at the very bottom of the air shaft of our hotel or our uh, apartment. And I asked my mom, who is that? And she said, well, that's the caretakers. That's kind of the caretakers of the building. That's where they live. And yet those were the kids that we were playing in the dirt with, playing soccer all the time with. And yet that's where they lived. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that definitely, you know, has to give you uh, a perspective that, you know, you really might not get maybe ever. Um, and to have it at, you know, such a young age, how does that start to kind of inform your younger years? I mean, you know, tell me a little bit more about then, like, what, what did you do with that? If anything, are these memories that you kind of look back in hindsight and, and as an adult, you kind of grab on to, or like, how does that actually impact how you're, you know, living at that point? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think again, at the time, uh, and I think all of us throughout our lives, like we think that everybody, if we see it, then everybody else sees it and everybody else is having the same experience. So at the time, I'm not sure I, I realized, I certainly didn't realize, you know, the gravity I'm getting that word in there. The gravity of the situation. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you're welcome. Of, I, you know, I didn't realize how impactful I think that was of just the way that it was teaching me how and what I was seeing. 
But as I grew up, I think it certainly has made me uh, hopefully grateful, hopefully more aware of the fact that other people don't live the way that, that I've been lucky to live, to watch for people maybe on the fringes, and also to think about how do you, so, um, you know, how do you reach out to people? And I think I was forced to have to learn how to make friends and kind of be in an uncomfortable environment. And so that's probably influenced me in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think there's like something to really having to do that stuff when you're young. Because, you know, as you get older and you become a little more of a creature of habit, it's like uh, learning to ski, you know, if you, if you, or anything really, playing music, you know, you do it when you're young, you don't have all the hangups of uh, all the fear, all the worry, all the doubt. I mean, you might have them, but, you know, you kind of plow through it because, like you said, you just think that's what you're supposed to be doing. And then as you get older, you're like, oh, I know how to do that. I'm, I can do that. You know, as opposed to not having that experience and and having to deal with it when you do have all the fear and worry and doubt and stories and attachments, you know, it, it's a pretty powerful experience to learn at a young age. No doubt, no doubt, totally, uh, totally lucky. And again, I I was lucky to be put in that environment and not necessarily choose it, but but be be a a, a product of it, I guess. Yeah, and tell me a little bit more. I'm kind of curious about this experience where. You, you know, you, you go off to uh, Berlin and, and you know, this and maybe kind of, you know, a little more insight into your parents as to kind of the ups and downs that they were having and kind of how they navigated it. It sounded like they were pretty um, mindful people, you know, wanting to kind of do good in the world, maybe. You know, I, I don't know kind of exactly, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about, you know, what that was like and, and, and what you know about maybe what they were experiencing and or you know shared have shared with you since about that time. Yeah. So uh, you know the reason why we were in, in Egypt in the first place because I'll just to give some context is you know my dad was part of these development projects where actually they were building these uh, what we refer to as chicken coops. They were figuring out they're part of a development of how do you raise chickens in desert climates, and they were developing these across the Middle East, and yet. This is in the 70s. And then all of a sudden, the Iranian revolution hits and everything changes. And so all these projects that were in mid-motion, which again, you can appreciate, um, all of a sudden it was, well, we're not going to pay Americans. And so all these projects that they had going and were starting and developing that, that my, my dad and his brother, and, or my dad, his brother, and then his dad, my grandfather, and, and many others uh, that were involved in this, all of a sudden, uh, we're not paying you. And all of all these things that were in motion and money owed and money given out to many people and, and all these things just dried up. So when we were actually in Egypt in 83 and 84 was uh, my dad trying to re-salvage some of those relationships and try to still holding on to those contracts and trying to help and, and very admirably trying to get, make sure everybody was getting paid that needed to get paid, but trying to uh, keep them going. And at that point, then we just had to get out of the country and they said, and, and, and we had to cut our losses and, and file for bankruptcy and, and things like that. And so, you know, those are the, the elements of it that I know from my vantage point. Uh, and, but what's amazing is as kids, we didn't really have any understanding of that. We didn't have any my parents did an amazing job of protecting us from any of that kind of worry or the stress that they were going through. 
my dad had amazing stories about that time in our lives. So, so that gives you a, a little bit of context to then the next few years, the, the very down part of his business. And yet my dad was a creative, visionary, uh, I will go for it kind of person and, and, and also a person of the world. Like he wanted uh, to, to, he wanted to meet new people and, and appreciate people from different parts of the world. And so, and my mom was a very principled and uh, one of the most consistent human beings I've ever, I've ever been around. And so to watch, um, and she, she wanted to give us experiences that were going to teach us something. And so you put those things together, which is why then you wake up on a Christmas morning when maybe funds are a little low at that time and they have airline miles. And their thought in their head was, let's go give our kids an experience. And so all these things we're hearing on the news about the Berlin Wall being torn down, let's go help. And so that was their kind of thinking. And so there we were. And of course, as kids, like, I mean, I'm, I'm upset as we're leaving, going to the airport. I'm like, because I'm going to miss a basketball game. And basketball is really important to me in my life at the time. You know, I mean, I loved basketball. So like, we, what, are, uh, what about my team? Mm-hmm. And yet they're saying they had this bigger vision. And there we were literally standing at the foot of the Berlin Wall while guards are up on top of it with machine guns. And we are with big metal blunt objects are helping to chip away at the Berlin Wall. Mm. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah, amazing. And and do you feel like when you know you're on that plane to Germany and you're you're kind of, you know, I don't know, maybe still pissed about leaving your team behind and and, yeah. and not having Christmas gifts. I mean, the things that you kind of uh, fall into being, you know, what you cherish at that point in your life, you know, that was your life. Uh, are you, are you kind of like, what, what am I doing here? Like this, this stinks. Like, totally. And like, at what point does it then become like, wow, this is pretty cool. I mean, is this like a later in life? Like, obviously now you look back and go, wow, you know, but, but when you're, when you're, pounding on the wall? Like at what point are, are, are you like, well, this is history. We're doing something way cooler. Like, thank you, mom and dad. Did that happen at that age or, or did you have to wait till later for that? Yeah. So uh, what's, uh, what's it, of course, like when you're an eighth grader, everything that's in your life is paramount. That's, you know, you're involved in, right? So your friends are paramount. Uh, basketball was such a big part of my life and I loved it. And and uh, so again, I'm, I'm, I'd like to believe that we were these grateful, wonderful kids that like woke up that morning. we like, oh, let's go on an adventure. But at that point, we were like, wait, I still remember my, my brother and sister and I, as many kids do, you huddle right before you're allowed to go down and you look at each other and like, oh my gosh, it's the most exciting thing on Christmas morning. Let's go down. And us running down the stairs and turning the corner and seeing the tree and there being very few gifts under the t- tree. And, and I remember that feeling of like, Oh geez, what's happening? And us all kind of looking at each other, like, "Huh, this isn't the magical <laughs> experience we were accustomed to." And then, uh, so on that plane ride, no, I, I we didn't. Ha- we were like, and then when they said we're going to go on a trip, we're thinking, "Okay, can we go to the beach? Can we, go, you know?" And they're saying we're going to Germany, and we're like, "Huh?" Mm-hmm. And so it didn't compute. And 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 I certainly, while we were on the trip, I would. There were wonderful moments on the trip. We had a great time. And, and of course, uh, then that experience was fantastic. Uh, and certainly being at the wall, it started to click into us that, wow, something here is happening that's bigger than us. 
and seeing, well, we're a part of something. But even then, I did not have the gravity again of the, of the, what was happening. It sure. took till later on in life and certainly processing that with my parents is like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of had that conversation with my kids throughout this pandemic where you're trying to really explain that, you know, this is what will likely, you know, be talked about, written about as a very historic time. And you can compare it to other times in history. And I think that there's this kind of um, feeling or consensus that when you're in that time of history, it doesn't feel as profound as it turns out to end up being. Um, yep. And certainly if you're young, it's hard to, to grasp that. But talk to me a little bit about kind of as you move forward, as you start to kind of get into high school and, and eventually into college, you know, what's, what's this experience that you've had, you know, to this point, this, this worldliness, the kind of opportunities to uh, get outside your comfort zone, to have the ups and downs? What do you kind of continue to do with your kind of high school years, is 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 it athletics? You know, what kinds of things are you getting into? What's what's your kind of uh, uh, mindset at that stage? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, much like uh, many kids, uh, you know, when I get into high school, you know, uh, friends and girls and all of the normal stuff is super exciting and fun. And uh, in basketball, I played football all growing up and played football my freshman year and then, but really basket then stopped and basketball really was, was my love. And so I, I kept playing that all through, through high school and then into college. And so that was, that was an experience that I loved and certainly being a part of a team and, and, and all of those things were super important and, and taught me a whole lot. I, I would say from my early years, you know, what carried forward, I guess, is this continuous thinking about, um, relationships and I guess where we're positioned in the world. And, you know, that's when I think uh, some of the elements of faith begin to come in. I mean, I, I had been grown up in a, in a, in a uh, we went to church and we, you know, had been a part of environments, went to summer camp, you know, Camp Akita that had been really instrumental in my life growing up. And, but it was in those middle school and high school years where then this idea of faith and serving people and um, connected to something greater than us. And, and all of those kind of things all of a sudden started to make a little bit more sense. And I think probably because of my early years of seeing things that um, this idea of what did that look like in action in the world, I began to be interested in that kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, that's more kind of a, an interest that's emerging. You know, would you kind of say, you know, that that I know you go on to play basketball uh, in college, the, the kind of team aspect, the athletic aspect, I mean, kind of tell me a little bit about how that is starting to form you as well. Yeah, well, I, I uh, was, I had a love for basketball and was lucky to have experiences and put in environments where I was able to play it and and then have some success. And and I just, I loved being a part of a team. I, 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 again, you think everybody's experiencing it the same way you are, but you start to realize over many years and many teams is that maybe people aren't thinking about it exactly the same way you are. I loved working hard. I loved being in an empty gym 
with a couple of friends where you're working on something and you're and you're and you're then coming together and you're a part of trying to accomplish something together that's you know I, I, I liked that element and yet I thought everybody thought that way and you start to realize not everybody does think that way mm-hmm. and um, so that became uh, yeah important to me and it and it was fun and, and I then I was lucky also to then be kind of elevated into positions of leadership or asked to be you know captains of teams and things like that that again at the time I I, I just was wow that's great thank you um, and I again thought that that's just the way everybody thought about things. But I think it was starting to prepare me or at least lead me in some ways of giving me experiences of how do you, how do you rally people? How do you, how do you uh, work hard at something? How do you work together and not just individ- individually? So all those things. I mean, we're, uh, and I had good, you know, good coaches and not so good coaches and all of that over the years that, uh, I was always learning. Yeah. And, and and I think it's, you know, worth kind of digging a little deeper on this idea that you um, were kind of asked to take these responsibilities and to start to really lean into leadership. I'm curious, you know, do you think that's kind of like how you were wired? You know, you, you kind of, you know, describe it as you, you just, you know, assume, you know, everybody's like that or you know, maybe you don't think that much of it at the time. Um, it's just how you are. But, but you know, I'm wondering how much of that do you think is like your, you came out this way, your God-given gifts and, and how much of it has really been kind of developed by your experience? Because it's not that everybody's that way, right? I mean, even in, in right. doing what you do now, as we eventually start to talk about that, you know, you, you have got to be a strong leader to do the work that you do and to have done the work that you've, you've done your whole career and, and, you know, life to some extent, uh, that's not something that everybody has. Was it, was it born or developed or both? What's your kind of opinion on, on, on that? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, and, and, uh, I certainly think about it from a leadership context all the time, but I, I guess I appreciate you asking because I, I don't know whether I've uh, really sat back and, and thought about that so much from my my own life uh, all that much. So I appreciate you asking. I, I would say I, I think there is. I mean, there what we know there are individual. Uh, all of us are naturally oriented in individual ways that we can't explain, you know, uh, my brother, sister, and I are all different. We came from the, basically the same environment. We all have different gifts and different strengths and, and, and things that we do differently. So I think you're, I think you are wired in such a way to maybe have a a predisposition or be more naturally oriented in ways. But I also then think on top of that, uh, we are developed and certainly the work that I do now, like we are developed. And so the thinking of, I'm a, I'm a grateful product of wonderful experiences and and lessons I had to learn and experience and develop and was lucky to be put into positions and surrounded by people I think that nudged me and some of which you you just have to learn and experience on your own but the fact is that you've got people around you uh, all the way so I think it's a combination of that to be mm-hmm. honest mhm it makes sense uh, I, I'm curious kind of as you then kind of start to move out of college and into your 
work life. I, I've seen this camp experience be one that is really, really uh, a very seared into a lot of people's life experience. Yeah. I, I did not have the camp experience. I didn't go away. Um, we had, we attempted to send our kids away for a couple of years and they never really gravitated to it either. But I, I, I've got friends and uh, our kids have friends. And for many people, the camp experience is also one that's, that turns out to be really a big part of the journey. And in your case, uh, you, you end up as the director uh, at Camp Akita. This becomes part of your career. Talk to me a little bit about kind of the role that camp really played in your life. Yeah, no, I appreciate you asking that. Yeah, it, it's had a huge impact because again, as a kid, uh, it, it was a it was a space that that where I felt accepted and um, invited to think bigger and around people or friends and and having fun and and again an environment outside of your normal bubble or where you live and so I think that's part of the power of summer camps is getting you outside of your own element but being a part of a community and the power I mean I remember coming out of college then and. And then eventually when uh, John Ross, who was the camp director at the time and a wonderful person and, and mentor of mine over the years, uh, he, he, I remember him grabbing me and saying, hey, I, I think you ought to come and do this uh, you know, full time. And I looked at him like, do what? Like, I don't even get it. Like, this is a job, you know, like do what, what, what would I even do, you know? And, and he, he did a great job of, of course, pitching it to me and, and saying, hey, come do it for, for a year and let's see where it leads. And next thing you know, you know, uh, he he took another job, and and really he saw me as as a successor, and, and then I'm there ten years, you know. So, uh, but being a part of, and it was the same thing. And I, again, I I believe it's an extension of what I was learning and being my whole life. And it, uh, I found myself coming out of college, and in all the college interviews and everything, all these different places that you interview and talk to, of course, uh, they'd ask you where do you see yourself in ten years or twenty years, and all these questions that that uh, maybe I was a bit cynical about as a college student, but you know you don't know anything yet, and and I just I, I found myself repeating the same answer to those questions every time as I'd say, I want to be doing something that has redeeming value in the world. I don't want to just be going to a job. I want to be doing something where I feel like I'm making a difference to people and the world in some way. That's what I want to do. I don't know what it yet, and so then when this opportunity. Uh, to quote unquote go back to summer camp for a year and lead the college staff and then turn that turned into a year and then that next thing you know I'm the director and it's ten years. Uh, it was the same thing. It was about building a team of people. It was building a culture and a community of people that were accepting and welcoming people, celebrating people where they were, and helping us think bigger about the world we're in and the impact we can have in it. And um, that's why it, I guess, went from one year to then all of a sudden, uh, when they said, I want you to make a five-year commitment, and I almost laughed at them. I was like, dude, that's crazy. And then I was there 10 years. And the, uh, you know, along the way, I was in a program for nonprofit executive management and, and all this stuff. And, and next thing you know, uh, I'm, I'm in a position where I'm luckily leading and developing uh, the camp and uh, projects serving the homeless, living outside of the shelter system in Columbus, and taking people and building houses internationally in Mexico and the Dominican Republic, and all this amazing stuff that um, I just was lucky to then get to kind of dream and connect and go. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's uh, interesting because today it seems a lot more common for young people coming out of college to be thinking about their career in conjunction with their life, that they, they want to do something that they like, that they enjoy, that um, has purpose, that maybe is bigger than themselves. When I was coming out of school, I wasn't thinking like that. I um, didn't even know from that, really. I, I the, the thoughts that I had about that, I didn't allow space for. Um, mm. For me, it was about getting a job, uh, yeah. making some money, uh, impressing some folks, you know, showing up at my college at my high school reunion with a business card, you know, putting on a suit and tie every day and feeling important. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I just candidly was not mature enough to really be thinking about my life that way, certainly as it pertained to my work. I'm wondering, you know, you you really right away kind of uh, say that you you are thinking about wanting to make a difference and to do something that you loved and you know that you, you look at the camp job is like wow this is this is work like you know that that's that's what people really are striving for that feeling like you know work and play are the same and and you go right into that you know is is again is that kind of like did you learn that along the way was that role modeled for you was that your experience is that just who you are like Where's the maturity to be able to have that mindset at that age? You know how how does that uh, become you know your thought process? Again, I think it's the intersection of all that. I think it's the ecosystem of yes, the way that I was born, the way I've kind of naturally thought, the way that I'm just oriented, but also the the ecosystem of people around me and experience I had and support I had. And the invitation, I guess, from from people in my life to think about things again bigger, and and so I, to, uh, I I know many people, of course, came out. It sounds like wh- where you were thinking. I, I'm just I'm really glad that I I, I um, not there's anything wrong with however anybody does it. I'm grateful that that didn't even cross my mind. Like certainly, and, and I I knew at that point money was important. <laughs> you know that you got to have money, but like I wasn't. Uh, I knew I could live and I, I could figure that out. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, and, and also uh, kind of an interesting point of that intersection was the day I accepted to go back uh, to summer camp for that, for that summer that was going to lead to the one year, the very day I had lunch with that guy, John Ross, who, who invited me to that was the day that the Chicago Bulls called and left me a message offering me a job in their sales and marketing, a part of a program that would, that a, I would be a part of it for four months, and if I if I did it well, I would learn it. It would lead into a full time job. And so here's a guy that's grown up, and and the thought that sports was you know the direction I wanted to go, and the Chicago Bulls are calling you, and I still remember having that phone call back to that person and and telling them I just accepted a position at summer camp, and they actually called back a week later to be like, "Are you sure?" Yeah. And but there was no, and I don't know how to explain it. Like there was no. Oh shoot! There was no hesitation or doubt. It was just like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. this makes sense. Well, I, I think it's kind of your experience, so it feels like maybe it's not as um, a big of a deal to you. But what, what what kind of is coming up for me? I used to work with a therapist um, who many people in Columbus 
uh, knew well, uh, Norman Shubb. I don't know if you ever knew Norman, but he passed away a couple of years ago. And uh, he used to talk about steel rods. He, he would talk about, you know, your children and trying to build them with, with steel rods, which essentially meant like when the Chicago Bulls come calling, you're like, no, I'm I'm going to this thing because that's who I am and that's what I want to do. Like, I know that's pretty sexy. And most people, you know, at that time yeah. are not saying no to the Chicago Bulls in a marketing role. I mean, that's that's yeah. pretty cool, right? You know, that's got all right. the, the the bells and whistles. You're you're a basketball player. I mean, you know, that the Bulls were kind of it. So, you know, steel rods is kind of what comes to mind. It sounds like you've kind of had this experience. That. Maybe that's who you are. Maybe that's your ecosystem. It's the intersection of all those things. I agree with you, but it's it's just who you are, and it's that. Or you know, I strong- was just dumb, Brett. I mean, maybe I was just <laughs> dumb, you know. Like, and I was, no. I, I I don't know. I I, uh, but but I I don't I don't second guess. I never have this that decision. And maybe I was dumb. Maybe I was naive. Maybe I was, um. But but I I truly in the moment uh, had the feeling of like no. If I've in the way I was thinking about it, if I've got one year. Uh, this is what I'm going to go do, and and again, p- maybe totally unrealistically, but I thought if they're interested in me now, why wouldn't they be interested in me later? If that's yeah. ever what I want to go do, maybe there'll be other opportunities, and maybe that's dumb, naive. I, I don't know, but I I didn't give it much thought. Well, no, I think it's actually uh, pretty good lessons and and messaging for people. You know, this idea that uh, if it's not now, it'll be there later. And, and, and maybe, you know, it won't be there later, but then it wasn't really probably meant to be, you know, you, you needed to kind of, you know, go down the path that you went down. And I think that's important for people to, to hear. Sometimes things have a tendency, especially when you're young to feel kind of uh, all or nothing or, or really important. And like, you yeah. might never yeah. not have another chance, you know, and, and that's just not really the case. Talk to me a little bit about stack step back from the baggage claim. I want to know, (laughs) um, I want you to tell the story and I want to know really kind of what you were thinking when you decided to do this. Yeah, great, uh, great question. So, uh, you know, I work as the director of Camp Akita and and leading all those mission and and service projects and, you know, uh, for 10 years. And uh, got to the point where I was kind of leading everything, at least that was in my view, and that 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 was uh, at least really interesting to me at the time. And so, as you maybe are picking up on now, like I, I'm not exactly wired to just kind of um, be like, okay, well, that's that's it. And I've already, you know, I'm at, I'm in, I'm leading all this stuff, and so like, okay, that'll be the rest of my career. Like I was still a young guy, and. And lucky to have all the experience, and, and I wouldn't trade that ten years from anything. The relationships and everything I got to do and be a part of, amazing. But I'm not exactly wired to just sit and stay. And there wasn't another next step, and there certainly wasn't vision on the organization side of things of like how we would make it even bigger and blow it up even more, and empower me to be the guy to go do that. And so I made the decision uh, with my wife Amy, and uh, we had two young kids at the time. Now we have three uh, that. You know, in the same spirit of the way I took the job is let's let's go on an adventure and and I think it's time for me to do a really good transition with that job. And my in my head was kind of throw a smoke bomb and sneak out the back door and 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 just hope it uh, do a good transition and empower people to carry it to the next level. Um, 
And so I step out and one, and, and as I am then uh, at the beginning of 2008, January 1, 2008, which you could imagine where we were in the world at that point as the recession was beginning, uh, I now have quit my job. My wife is on maternity leave, so no pay. Uh, we have two young kids uh, at the time. And so we enter into this space, not recklessly. We had been smart and saved a little money and and knew we had a little, and we chose to do it this way. We wanted to do a good transition and then step into this unknown. But we wanted to give ourselves time and space to see what would evolve, what would emerge, and what would I get excited about next. In the midst of all these different interviews and things that I was considering, other roles, nonprofit executive management, mostly kind of roles, I, the thing that kept surfacing was this creative project, which at the time, so I quit January 1, 2008. A couple of weeks later, I had booked airplane tickets <laughs> and I went seven different cities in seven days, Columbus to Boston, Boston, Miami, Chicago, Minneapolis, Seattle, San Diego, seven days in seven cities without leaving the airport the entire time. And at the time, only my wife and then we told my parents the night before I left just so they wouldn't freak out about me quitting my job, disappearing with my wife and two kids at home. And I was in the airports. And I was attempting to write what in the, was just a concept at the time, this book, Step Back from the Baggage Claim. And I had no idea that was going to lead or like what... I'd never written a book. I didn't know how you do that. I didn't know what it would ever become. But I just went. And then you know the, the sped up version of the story is, uh, fortunately, uh, I realized that that was the thing I kept getting most excited about as other opportunities emerged. That's and I, and I knew there was something there that was more than just a book. I, there was a story, and it wasn't just about airports. It was certainly connected to everything else that I've been experiencing and interested in the world. And uh, step back from the baggage claim, changed the world, started the airport, came out uh, at the end of 2008, and fortunately uh, had a great response. And people, it resonated with people. They got the metaphor, this idea of being at a crowded baggage claim. Everybody, you know, anybody who traveled had experienced that. And the idea of instead of just racing in and knocking other people out of the way to grab your bag and forming that wall at the baggage claim so nobody can actually see the bags, that like, what does it mean for us to step back and to see things more clearly? And then to think about the way that we move throughout the world and the difference that that has on the people around us and the culture we create along our spaces. Yeah. And, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. curious when you, when you, um, there's a, a few things there I want to understand a little better, but when you decide to take on this project and that you're going to go sleep in these airports and take the seven days on, do you have a sense as to what it is that you're looking to observe? I mean, it, it, what what's the, kind of the high-level idea first? And, and does this kind of step back just kind of emerge as the as the learning, the clarity after the experience. You know, tell me a little bit more about like that first thought. Like, what what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? What is it that yeah. I'm trying to understand? Why am I a strange human and and thinking? Yeah. Uh, so the the idea or the concept, at least, had been I think marinating with me for a number of years on all these trips where I was leading people to go build houses in Mexico in the Dominican Republic and other travels and things that I was doing at the time, I kept seeing the airport and air travel as a metaphor. And I kept just thinking about it. And I would make these kind of offhanded jokes to a couple of people. I remember this in particular saying, someday I'm going to write a book about that and just joking. 
But this, the, the idea of, you know, when you're in the airport, you watch the hurry and the, 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 the rush to get from point A to point B and everybody seemed to be on pins and needles and, and nervous and anxious and, and, and uh, this kind of race. And, and oftentimes what you would see is that kind of, uh, and, and what, I, what I thought I was going to see, but which is why I went to the airport for seven days to make sure and clarify, is this what I'm really seeing across many different cities for 24 hours a day? But I see these things, like this metaphor of stepping back and seeing the bigger picture and thinking about our lives are not just about racing from one point to the next, but how we travel and how, how we move impacts the people around us. And so that was the concept. But that's all it was at that point. It was just a, a, a concept, an idea. And then uh, for whatever reason, I was weird enough or crazy enough. And thankfully, my wife trusted me enough and, and said, you know, go, you need to do this. Um, but I had to go like immer- submerge myself in the, in the airports and for 24 hours a day, watch and see what would come up. So I literally, I wrote probably 75% of the book, like literally that week while I'm in the airports. Sleeping on the floor and typing away. Yeah, it's interesting because I think oftentimes people, and myself included, you have a thought, you have an idea, you you think you see something, and you don't really know exactly where it's going or if there's something there. But but most of the time, people let it go. I think there isn't a willingness, you know, you said, you know, this crazy guy. I mean, I think it's really more courage. I think, you know, what you're showing is that you're courageous enough to kind of step into the unknown and really give something an opportunity to unfold in a way that isn't clear and Mm. that just feels aligned and feels like it's um, purposeful, part of your path, part of your journey. And, you know, I think just kind of in reflection, my, you know, kind of dot connecting just, uh, it appears like, you know, being the uh, eight-year-old in Egypt and, you know, these life experiences that you've had along the way allow you to be comfortable in that discomfort or to continue to move through the discomfort with the unknowns, much probably more courageously than most. And, and, and what comes of it then is like a whole bunch. Like this is now your work, right? You're yeah. an author, you're a speaker, you're a coach, right? You know, everything comes from that seven days, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. no. I, I love, I, thank you for sharing that and giving me that perspective, connecting the dots, because I think that's, I think that's powerful. And, uh, you know, one of the images, at least that comes to my head, and I actually share this and step back from the baggage claims. I, I talk about, I, I never knew how bamboo grows, <laughs> which hang with me here for a second. Like you see the way bamboo comes up out of the surface and it just looks like these straight shoots, right? It goes right up, straight up and down vertical. But yet, as I learned more about how bamboo grows, it starts with what's called a calm underneath the, the surface. And it actually shoots off in one direction and it grows a little bit. And then it shoots off in another direction and it grows a little bit. And then it shoots off in another direction. It keeps doing this underneath the surface until finally, for whatever reason, when it's ready to bloom or whatever, it shoots up through the surface. 
And so we, from the surface level, we look at it and we think, oh, bamboo just grows very linearly, you know, like straight vertically up and down. But the reality is it has many different twists and turns underneath the surface. And so the, the, the creative process, the courage, the experiences we have in our lives, like they don't follow this one linear path as, you know, I think we cognitively know that. But for my life, and certainly I guess the courage to go on the adventure at that time is that, yeah, I'd been lucky that I'd flexed those muscles a lot throughout my life, that I, I, I was maybe more comfortable being uncomfortable, more comfortable sitting in unknown, more comfortable with the idea that there was something else that I needed to go find and was willing to kind of go on that next path of learning. But everything connects. And eventually then there's something like, oh, um, and the book is one, that first book is the one is one of the examples of something that then finally like it started to come through the surface. And, um, but there was a whole lot underneath the surface that I think led to me even being able to create it. I got it. That makes sense. And I, and I like the analogy. Let's, let's talk about what you're doing now. Um, uh, thermostat cultures. So, so there's, a, there's another book in here. There's a conference, a podcast, a coaching. You know, tell me about kind of everything that, you know, that kind of has sprouted, you know, in your life that's your, your work now. Yeah. So, I mean, again, gratefully from that first book, uh, it was well-received, resonated with a lot of people. It opened doors and created opportunities to then connect and say, what is this idea of stepping back from the baggage claim? You know, then there was a business edition of the book and a healthcare edition of the book and an education edition of the book. And it just began to take on this life of like, what does this metaphor mean for different ways in which we, how, however, the reader is connecting with it uh, through their life and their business? Uh, then I wrote a book called Remember, which is about uh, in the midst of the most uh, busy and cluttered and distracted time in our world, what does it mean every day to kind of remember and remember not only con- cognitively what is the mission and purpose of what we're trying to be about, but what does it mean to remember and kind of renew the memberships in your life and in your work and make sure is it getting or the highest priority is getting the focus uh, for for you. And then that led to, and so everything was kind of building off one another, but this idea of, you know, personal stepping back and reflection and thinking about the people around you and then renewing the relationships and the focus of you and your team. And then what is the culture that we're trying to create? And so the latest book, Thermostat Cultures, is about how do teams and organizations proactively shape the culture that they want? Not the code culture they experience reactively, but proactively. How do you shape it? And and as you said, that certainly has led to a lot of you know keynote speaking and consulting with organizations that are f- trying to figure out how do we intentionally grow and connect and engage the minds and hearts of our people and grow the culture the way we want it, not react reactionary just the way it's going to become. And that has led to, you know, podcast and an, an event that I do, Thermostat Cultures Live and, and all of that, which is all about connecting all of us to what does it mean to be an authentic leader and create, set a temperature for the culture we want to create in the world. Yeah, I really like the, the um, naming, um, the thermostat culture and, and uh, just using that language. You know, when I kind of dove in and, and learned about it a little bit, you know, this idea that we're constantly reacting to the external, you know, the, the, the weather changes, the temperature changes, like let's go over and adapt. And, and, 
you know, it's really a, a, a strong, you know, messaging that, you know, I think a lot of people can relate to that, that, you know, let's, let's not be reacting constantly to the external conditions. Let's, let's create together. And, and I read somewhere, I, I think uh, that, you know, what you're saying, what you just said really is, you know, that this, this with greater alignment comes greater impact. And, mm-hmm. and that's really, you know, I think the kind of point of this podcast is really to kind of show the alignment. How, how did that happen? And, and how are we now uh, functioning and, and, and living and working in alignment? And, you know, you've really demonstrated that, you know, from the beginning, uh, you know, you're, especially as we talked about, as you get into your career, right into something that feels aligned. And so for you to be teaching this work, you know, one of the things that I'm always really uh, uh, a champion for is, is there are a lot of coaching uh, products now and coaches in the, in the world, which to me, I think is a huge necessity. But coaches who have the experience of what they're coaching and are actually living what they're coaching and have been in their work and in their life are really the coaches that I think are having the most success with their clients. And you're clearly doing that and that's what you're teaching. And uh, and it's and it's awesome to see. And you know, I'm glad. Christy, our good friend Christy, I gotta you know plug yeah. her. She, Christy Eckert, you know, said to me years ago, really, you gotta meet Jason. Do you not know Jason? How do you not know Jason? So I'm glad yeah. we finally got the chance to meet and for uh, me to kind of hear your full story and having you here today on the podcast. And before we wrap up, is there anything else that that we didn't connect on that you do want to share or kind of final thoughts? No, I, I I'll just say, hey man, I I appreciate chatting, and I um um thanks for asking, and it's been fun to get to know you a little bit, and to uh, and I appreciate what you're doing and and what you're doing with this podcast, and and I love what you just said about alignment, and what I would just say is that alignment, like sometimes I think in our heads, and certainly when we talk about coaching or or, or teams and and clients, organizations, sometimes we think once we're in alignment, like uh, everything. Uh, you know, we don't have to worry about it again. But the reality is, is we're always in the process of realigning and, and that it's easy to fall out of alignment. And so, which is why something like what you're doing is bringing people back to alignment and trying to uh, help support people in that is a really, is a really wonderful thing. And I'm, I'm grateful to get to get, do the work and connect with people that are authentic and passionate about it. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, that's great. I appreciate that kind of final thought. You know, it, it is true. And that's why what you're doing is really important because we're constantly needing to calibrate and make sure we're, you know, getting back uh, in alignment. So uh, that's an important thing to, to end on. So Jason, thanks again. I really appreciate having you here and, and hearing your story and, and being on the podcast today. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you having me. Uh... Awesome, man. Keep up the great work. And anybody that wants to connect, I hope you'll track me down and uh, be fun to, to connect. Thank you. Great. We'll put all your tags in the show notes and make sure people have a chance to find you and connect with you. Take care, buddy. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. 
please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 